Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we call on you, Lord, that you would teach us and guide us this morning from your word. We pray, O Lord, that we would not only come out of here learning more information, as as important as that is, Lord, we, we do want to learn more information. We do want to learn more things. But we call on you to go beyond that, that you would shape and mold our hearts uh, as you teach us these things, Lord. Uh, we want everything that you have for us in these verses, O oh Lord, and we, we humbly come before you and call on you to, to give us these things. Feed us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I'd like to introduce the sermon this morning using words that are not my own. They're the words from the pen of J.C. Ryle. Uh, some of you are very familiar with J.C. Ryle. And commenting on Matthew 23, he wrote these words. He says, we, uh, quote, we are now beginning a chapter which in one respect is most remarkable and the most remarkable in the four Gospels. You know, last week I was talking about how easy it is to skip chapters like this. And it's not uh, J.C. Ryle's opinion. Uh, it's one of the most remarkable chapters. He, he continues, quote, uh, It contains the last words which the Lord Jesus ever spoke within the walls of the temple. Uh, we made a, a point to, 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 to point that out last week. This is the last sermon that Jesus will preach in the temple before his crucifixion. Uh, Those last words consist of a withering exposure of the scribes and Pharisees and a sharp rebuke of their doctrines and practices, knowing full well that his time on earth was drawing to a close. Our Lord no longer keeps back his opinion of the leading teachers of the Jews, knowing that he would soon leave his followers alone like sheep among wolves. He warns them plainly against the false shepherds by whom they were surrounded and of quote. Well, we began our study last week in Matthew 23, didn't we? Um, and we saw that this chapter contains really, uh, if you've read ahead a little bit, um, when Jesus begins pronouncing the woes, uh, we see and recognize that this chapter contains the harshest rebuke uh, that is recorded uh, from the <laughs> lips of Christ during his. Uh, earthly ministry. Uh, that alone should get our attention. Um, and we need to always be keeping two things in, in mind here. If you, if you look at verses 1 and 2, um, uh, the first important thing is to ask, okay, who is Jesus speaking to here? And if you look at the verse, uh, we see very clearly He's speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to His disciples. Why is that so important? Well, when we make application of that, uh, what's the application of that for us? 
Well, he's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to us. He's speaking through all, to all of his disciples down through the corridors of time. Down through the corridors of time. The second thing that we notice here is those whom the rebuke is directed. If you look at verse 2, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees. Now, what's the application there? Well, the application there is to guys like me, isn't it? People who do what I'm doing right now. Uh, we really need to be warned by this chapter. Uh, it's just quite frightening, actually. Uh, when you think about it that way. Uh, that's who this is being directed to, the scribes and the Pharisees. And by pointing out the faults of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus exposes a number of important characteristics that we can mine from here, that we can use from here to help us discern true teachers who've been called by God from false teachers. Make sense? And... We see even more than that because Christ, by his mere presence there, coupled with what we have seen from Jesus in the first 22 chapters up to this point, and what we see from Jesus in what remains of Matthew's gospel, we see what the true leader is like with a capital T and a capital L. The true leader. The one who has not seated himself, the one who has been seated by Almighty God. So we're constantly seeing this contrast between the false and the true. And that's where I got the title for this series, True and False. True and False. And Jesus is really going to the negative first and by his presence going to the positive uh, we really should say false and true. The ser sermon series probably should have said false and true, but I don't think that sounds very good, does it? False and true. I think we say true and false, don't we? That's usually how we do it. Um, maybe you do it another way, but true and false. Um, we see the difference between the true leader and the false leader. We see the difference between the true system and the false system. Now, before we move on, I want to review some of the things we looked at last week. Uh, if they weren't clear to you last week, don't, don't let that make you nervous. Uh, some of the things we're looking at here takes a while to digest. I, it's, it's a constant exposure. We don't always get all of this in the first take. And some of you are used to me saying this. You know, I, I, I had a professor in seminary that said learning is like painting. You know, we, we don't try to paint. We don't try to cover the wall in one coat. Uh, if we do, what happens? All the paint runs to the floor. Uh, last week, we tried to put on a first coat. Uh, if we didn't get it all covered, that's fine. Uh, we're we're going to look at a couple of these things over again, see if we can get another coat of paint on. Sound good? Um, last week, we observed two characteristics, in essence, of these false teachers. Uh, the first was in verse 2. Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, what does it mean to sit on Moses' seat? It really simply just means to teach the Word of God. We could... We could leave it with that instead of reviewing everything we looked at last week. But basically, teaching the Word of God uh, is sitting on Moses' seat. Uh, but as we're going to continue to see later uh, this morning, uh, the, the problem was they were adding to the Word of God. They were adding things to the Word of God. 
Uh, and to the measure that you add to the Word of God, you're seating yourself. Does that make sense? If I come up here this morning and I add things to the Word of God, I'm a usurper. I'm seating myself. I have my own agenda. And we can be certain that if I'm adding to the Word of God, that agenda is not Christ's agenda. There is no reason to add to the Word of God. We have a complete testimony here. Uh, my assignment is to uh, teach and preach what we have here, uh, not add to it. And to the measure that we add to it, to that same measure, we're seating ourselves. Does that make sense? And we saw last week that you know, really in, in the Greek, in the original language that the New Testament was written in, uh, a, a literal translation of this uh, would come right out and say, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And we saw the New American Standard translation even goes as far as to translate it that way, which is quite helpful for us uh, to see this. Now, uh, we see there's an antagonistic component to this. If we come up here and uh, we, we teach things that are not in the Word of God, uh, there's a bit of antagonism towards uh, the true teacher. The false teacher is always antagonistic towards the true teacher. There's always going to be a level of antagonism there. What do antagonists do? They attack the true leadership with their own agendas. Uh, Absalom, I think, in, in all of Scripture would probably be our, our classic example of the antagonist. What's he do? He stands at the gates and chums up with the people while he secretly undermines the authority of his father, King David. That's the antagonist. That's what's going on here. Now, obviously, they're misguided. And in all fairness to many of them, they, they, they do this, not setting out necessarily to be antagonists. They do this believing that what they're doing is the truth. In fact, uh, Jesus was speaking about them in John 16 and verse 2 when he told his disciples, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Now, we can think of the Apostle Paul as an example of this. Imagine him holding the coats. Uh, while Stephen is being stoned. Stephen is being murdered and he's looking up into the heavens and he, he's seeing the heavens as he is being murdered. And there's Saul of Tarsus is holding the coats while this takes place, fully believing he's offering a service to God. Well, a couple chapters later, it changes when the, the Lord reveals Himself to Saul of Tarsus. And he becomes known to us as the Apostle Paul, right? They do these things believing that they're offering a service to God. Uh, down through the centuries of church history, we've seen this over and over again. Christ's disciples, true disciples, killed at the hands of people who believe they're doing a service to God. We see it all the way up to the present hour. Now, in contrast to this, true leaders are seated by God. And again, Jesus is the the prime example. And if we think about our study at the end of Matthew 22, I tried to make a connection last week. Uh, it, it, you remember where we were at the very end when Jesus asked this, the question, the Christ, whose son is he? Remember that? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer, the son of David. And they're correct, aren't they? 
And we, we made all those connections in Matthew's Gospel, how the first verse of Matthew's Gospel, you know, the genealogy, uh, uh, or book of genealogy of, of Jesus Christ, son of David, and we made those connections. Yes, he is the son of David. Uh, it, it, the problem with the Pharisees is their understanding of the Christ wasn't complete. The Christ would be the son of David, but the Christ would also be the son of God. And we made uh, those connections as well. And we saw that all of this was according to the Scriptures. What does Jesus lean on as He is teaching these things? You know, what authority does He lean on? It's the Scriptures. And namely, at the end of Matthew 22, it's Psalm 110 and verse 1. That is what Jesus is leaning on. And that teaches us something, doesn't it? We're at the water cooler with our friends and we want to make a really good case that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's use Psalm 110 and verse 1. When Jesus wanted to make the case that He was the Son of God, that's, that's what He did. When He was putting His foot forward to make that case, Psalm 110, verse 1. So we see that. Um, so Jesus is, uh, Jesus is not the one who seats Himself. Christ is the one who has been seated by God. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, that uh, He has given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, for the work of equipping the saints, uh, for the work of the ministry, uh, for building up the body of Christ. Uh, so we see that uh, th th there are false leaders, there are true leaders. Uh, we, we saw that. Uh, the second thing that we looked at was, we don't have to spend much time on, is that false leaders distort the truth. Um, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day taught many things that were true. They taught many things that were true, but much of their teaching was, again, uh, of their own invention. Uh, in how do we tell the difference? Well, last week we looked at the Bereans in Acts 17, didn't we? Uh, remember the Bereans, Paul and Silas go into Berea. They preach the gospel. Now, what do the Bereans do with that? What do they do with what they're hearing? Well, they go to the Scriptures. And they're commended by God in that passage for doing what? Examining the Scriptures to see if these things are so. So how do we discern a true leader from a false leader? Examining the Scriptures to see if what they're teaching is true. How do we examine a true system from a false system? Examining the Scriptures to see if they're so. You know, we can almost put ourselves in the, in, in the Bereans. You know, we can almost imagine what it was. They, they hear Paul and Silas. They say, whoa, never heard anything like this before. What do you guys think of this? I don't know. Well, let, let, let's get out our Bibles. And I'll meet you after work. Let's sit around, let's talk about this. And it was that kind of thing that was taking place. And God commends them for it. So, once again, we see the true leader, set, uh, the, uh, the true system being discerned uh, to see if it's true. Now, let's continue working our way through this, this glorious chapter. If you look with me uh, to Matthew 23, if we take verses 2 and 3 together, we said the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves or sit on Moses' seat, if you will. And Jesus says, so practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do, 
for they preach but do not practice. Now, if you recall our explanation of, of Christ's words in this text last week, you know, Jesus says, practice and observe whatever they tell you. Uh, we stopped for a minute and we talked about that. Are, are, is, Jesus, is Jesus telling uh, his, his disciples and the crowds to obey everything that the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching? It seems like it, doesn't it? What's it say? So practice and observe whatever they tell you? Are they, are they being told to practice and observe every single thing? Well, we know the answer to that is absolutely false. No. How do we know that? Because back in chapter 16, what has Jesus been saying? He said to his disciples, listen, fellows, I want you to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And we're not left to guess what he means by that metaphor, leaven. Uh, we are told that that leaven is the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he, he's warning his disciples to beware. Why would he do that? Because a lot of the things that they're teaching is false. He's not going to tell us in one place to obey everything and then tell us in another place uh, to beware. We have to take these texts side by side. Well, um, if we think back even one other chapter, back to Matthew 15, Jesus said to the, uh, in, in that text, he's saying to the scribes and the Pharisees, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And we can think of that text, for the sake of your tradition. Uh, uh, the scholar Alfred Edersheim, who devoted much of his life to the study of uh, Judaism, uh, who himself was a Jew, I believe, if I remember right, he was born in Italy, and he was converted to Christianity at a, a young age, I think when he was studying in London, uh, but he really devoted his life to uh, the, uh, 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 the study of Judaism, uh, the study uh, the life and times of his people, especially as it uh, concerns the, uh, uh, the gospel. And he explains, he tells us that the scribes, uh, uh, if I use his words, he was describing uh, the teaching of the scribes, that they declared their traditions as absolutely binding on all, not only of equal, but even of greater obligation than Scripture. He went on to say that they believed their tradition was equally of divine origin with the Holy Scripture and authoritatively explained its meaning, supplemented it, gave it application to cases not expressly provided for, perhaps not even foreseen in biblical times. So what was going on here? What's taking place here? Well, I think it started out, probably started around the time of Ezra. And it started out... Uh, obviously with the best of intentions. The scribes and the Pharisees, they begin to teach the, the Word of God. And as a teacher, we're always concerned uh, about staying away from sin. We're always concerned about following the Word of God. Uh, I hope that all of us are concerned about that. So they would begin to uh, uh, make up these laws. Uh, they would add uh, different precepts. They would add different things to the Word of God in the hopes that these things would begin uh, to keep us uh, from sinning. Uh, so after time, uh, as time goes by, uh, they end up with this big body of material that they refer to as the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders. Uh, 
Um, and it is, it, this helps us to understand verse 9 of Matthew 15 when Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's how we're to understand that verse, verse 9. What's Jesus talking about? If we were to live during that day, we would know exactly what he was talking about. This big body of material that had been compiled uh, over the years that was being exalted to the level of God's Word. And in many cases, in fact, it's really impossible for us to have two things set side by side here. If we exalt something up to the level of the Word of God, you know what's going to happen? And this is what was happening during the first century. This something that we exalt up to the level of the Word of God will end up swallowing the Word of God. What does Jesus say? He says we cannot serve what? Two masters. Simply cannot be done. And that's what's taking place. Now, we learn something about the fallen human heart here. You know, our, our fallen human hearts are so set on being on the throne that even when we are trying to follow God, we can sometimes find ourselves lifting our own hearts up, lifting our own standards up, and using them to govern the Word of God. We're all guilty of this from time to time. And we all need to be aware of this tendency of the fallen human heart. And that's what was happening there in the first century. And that's what, what's Jesus calling us back to? Jesus is calling us back to the Scriptures. Jesus never appeals to this body of tradition. Not once in the Gospels does he do that. When Jesus is making his case, he appeals to the authority of God's Word. Time in and time again. And that's what we need to do as well. So what do we have here? What is Jesus saying to us? He says, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. Okay, we've... What, what, are, what exactly are we to observe? What are exactly we to, pro, to, to practice? Well, as long as they're teaching things that are, in, that are in conformity with the Word of God, we're to follow. Does that make sense? And that's what I really would like you to do this morning. I don't want you to believe anything that I've said this morning that, can't be, that you can't see in the Scriptures. Let's be like the Bereans. Okay, you're here in the sermon this afternoon. Go home and make sure it's so. If it's not, come and tell me. Does that make sense? So practice and observe whatever they tell you as long as it's in accordance with the Word of God. That's the criteria. But then he goes on to say, but not what they do. Not what they do. Practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do. Well, what's going on? Well, they're, they're preaching, but they're not practicing what they preach. And this is really an important word for us this morning. A really important word for us this morning. They're not practicing what they preach. Well, of course they're not practicing what they're preaching. Because their hearts are set on their own will. Their hearts are not... 
not totally set on the Word of God. They've got other things that they're, that they're raising up to the level of the Word of God. Their hearts are in these other things. Their hearts are not saying, their, their hearts are saying, my will be done. It's not saying, thy will be done. And when you have that going on, you can be rest assured, there's going to be hypocrisy. There's no way around it. There's absolutely no way around it. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What is he warning us about here? Well, there's many folks uh, in the church today that stay away from the church because they rightly observe that there are many leaders in the church who do not practice what they preach. I was speaking with a, a woman earlier this week who told me that her daughter, the problem she has with her, her daughter's big problem, she thinks, she watches, she pays attention, and she sees such a radical difference between those who are professing faith and what those who are professing faith go and do. She sees a radical bifurcation between what, those, uh, what these certain church leaders are preaching and what they're doing in the community. And it's not only uh, leaders that, that would fall under this warning. I mean, uh, obviously, it's, it's very often it's parishioners, parishioners who put on their religion with their Sunday clothes are really some of the devil's best employees. They really are. If we come in here and we put our religion on with our Sunday clothes and we go out and we live worldly lives, we're, we're, really, uh, we're really serving the devil very powerfully because there's lots of people who are watching us. You can be rest assured, people are watching you. And what's Jesus up to with this warning? He doesn't want these precious souls who are watching to be turned off from His church and turned off from His Word because of this misconduct. He's coming right out and saying it. Listen, if, if they're teaching something and you can find it, you, as long as it accords with the Scriptures, do it, but don't be following them around doing what they do. Don't be following them around and doing what they do. Does that make sense? Now, if Christ has a hold of your life, I mean, you're going to follow Him. That's all there is to it. If He has a hold of your life, you're going to follow Him. And all this to say is you follow Him, you're going to become increasingly holy. Now, before I move on, let's, let's be honest here. It's really easy to point at the other guy. Is it not? It's really easy to point at the faults of somebody else. But I wonder, um, is there any of us this morning that would claim that we perfectly practice what we preach? I can't make that claim. And I, I can't help but to think that, you know, maybe some of us have come in here this morning carrying a, a certain level of guilt over something you said last week or something you did last week. Have you ever come into a worship service like that? Inwardly torn because you realize that your conduct in a particular area didn't look anything like your profession? What are we to do? What are we to do? Well, Jesus is always present in this passage, isn't He? It's the last sermon He's going to give in the temple 
You know, there he is. What is Jesus preparing to do? What's he preparing to do? Well, a couple of days he's going to go to the cross. Well, what for? What's he going to do that for? What would anybody want to do that for? Well, let's take away the guilt of his people. All right, well, how's he going to take away the guilt of his people by going to the cross? Well, he's going to assume the liability for our hypocrisy. That guilt that you come in sometimes, that guilt, the shame. And Jesus is going to assume that for us. If you're a believer, He's going to do more than assume that for you. He's going to wash you of it. He's going to cleanse you. That guilt is awful, isn't it? I can't think of too many things that are more awful than that. I can't think of too many things that motivate us to do all the wrong things more powerfully than guilt and shame. Jesus is going to take that away from His people. That's what He's preparing to do. And these beautiful thoughts, really, they prepare us for the next point. If, we, if you look with me to verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens. Who do? The, the scribes with their traditions. They tie up heavy burdens. The scribes and the Pharisees with their false system. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And again, Alfred Hedersheim is really helpful here. He, he comments on this. He says, These traditions provided for every possible and impossible case, entered into every detail of private, family, and public life, and with iron logic, unbending rigor, and most minute analysis pursued and dominated man, turn whither he might, laying on him a yoke which was truly unbearable. What is Edersheim saying with all of that? He's saying this, uh, to keep from sinning, they piled up all kinds of rules. They covered all kinds of things. And every time they could think of one other rule, they would add it to the pile, and they'd add it to the pile, and they would add it to the pile until they had so many rules and so many regulations that they just strangled the life out of you. They just strangled the life out of you. And this is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 15. He says to them, God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, uh, he need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. See, again, Jesus is pitting that tradition with the word of God, isn't he? What's he doing? He's showing one to be false. He's showing the other one to be true. That's the whole point here, true and false. Uh, the fifth commandment calls us to honor our parents. So when their aging parents began to require their help, they would excuse themselves with their rules. It would sound really religious to say to your aging parents, you know, I would like to help you out, but I've given everything I have to God. No, it'd be fine if it was true. But that wasn't the case. This was a loophole in the tradition. They still had access to the uh, funds. They still had access to the assets. 
They were still at their disposal, and therefore they were making the fifth commandment null and void with their traditions. You see, you have to take the tradition, whatever it is. Tradition within itself is not wrong, as long as it accords with Holy Scripture. In this case, it wasn't according with Scripture. And this, is, this exposes another scandal of the fallen human heart. I mean, when we assemble these traditions, we also assemble loopholes. We realize that we can't follow the Word of God. So we'll, put, we'll, we'll, we'll wire up some loopholes in, this, in the schematic. We'll, 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 we'll have a couple short-circuit um, schemes here so that we can take it easy on ourselves, so that we can get out of stuff. And that's what they were doing there. It's exactly what they were doing. And all this is to say is that when we, listen, if we, when we take that tradition and we, we take that tradition and we build that tradition up to, uh, to compete with the Word of God, we're always going to bring the Word of God down. The Word of God will always come down. That's what will always happen. Now, what's the problem with all this? Why am I spending so much time on this? The problem is it doesn't work. It's a false system and it doesn't work. It doesn't work on a practical level uh, at all. Unless your conscience is so seared that it doesn't function anymore, you're still going to feel guilty. Believe me, I've talked to lots of people who are following false systems. You want to know what they all have in common? Unless their consciences are seared, they feel guilty. You can take that to the bank. Unless their consciences are seared, they feel guilty. Why do they feel guilty? It's because they are. Sometimes we feel guilty because... we. We are guilty. All right. So you go back to your system. What do you say? I'm going to make it up. You know, I, I, I know I failed today, but I'm going to make this up. And then we either deceive ourselves into thinking we made it up or we rightly realize that we can't make it up. Okay. So we go back to our system. We say, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to do better this time. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to do better this time. Well, how does that go? How does that go? Well, we all know how that goes. So, so, so and so and so the false system goes. It can't heal you. It, it can't remove your guilt. It can't take away the sin that's behind our guilt. Well, remember, Matthew 23, Jesus is present. And by His presence, what do we see? I think I see one who can heal you. I think I see one who can take away the shame. I think I see one who can take away the guilt. Okay. How's he going to do this? How's he going to do this? How's he going to remove the guilt? How's he going to remove the shame? Answer with one word. Forgiveness. It's forgiveness. If you're hung up on guilt and shame this morning, 
The problem is forgiveness. Either you've never come to Christ, and you can't come to Christ any way you want to. I've had this conversation with many, many people. We can't come to Him the way we want to. We have to come to Him the way He's calling us to. The only way we can come to Christ is to call out, is to call out for His mercy. We cannot be coming to Christ with any kind of merit on our own. You're going to carry that guilt to your grave if you do that. I promise you will. We come to Christ and we call on Him for His mercy. So if we're still wrestling with guilt, then we haven't done that. Or perhaps we have done that. There was a point in my life where I did that as best as I knew how. I went to the Lord Jesus with my guilt and my shame. And in studying His law, I just continued to intensify that, intensify that to the point that I was coming to Him in tears. Lord, I really believe You could save me. I just can't for the life of me think why You would want to. Because as I study Your Word, I see that I am a wretch. I couldn't possibly do something that would indebt You to me to where You would have to give me any kind of a credit for anything. Because if I would have followed You perfectly with my life, You still wouldn't be in debt to me. I would simply be, in, be doing what I should be doing. But we don't think through it that way. We think that, hey, we want to be bad, we can go ahead and be bad, but if we want to be good, then God owes us something. Well, get that thought out of your head altogether. Get that thought out of your head. You've got to get that thought out of your head. We've been called to be good. We're expected to be good. The problem is we can't be good. And if you don't believe me, go out and try. Go back to your system. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do better this time. I'm gonna do better this time. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna add some things in here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna add some things here. I'm gonna do it better. Well, that's fine. What do you do about the past? We can't do better. We can't never do good enough. That's the problem. We're lost. Charles Spurgeon used to say, if you can take your finger and you can touch one sound place in your life, one, just one little bastion of soundness where you say, you know, there I'm on, there I'm, I'm good on this one. I'm good on this one. I blew all the other ones, but I got this one down. If you can stick your finger on one place in your life where you think you're doing good, you are lost. You are lost. You won't get rid of your guilt that way. I promise you, you'll take it to your grave. But some of us, like myself, I come to see that. I went to Jesus. I believed He could save me, but I couldn't see why He would want to. See, that's another way we can get hung up, and I still felt guilty. Why? Because of my pride. I just wouldn't receive the salvation that He was offering me. Until one day in his good grace, he said, yeah, Rick, you know, I can save you. Okay, 
I know you can save me, but I can't see why you would want to. And I didn't hear a voice. But it was like he said to me, Rick, I, I want to. What else could I do for you to prove that I want to? And that's when my life changed. That's when the guilt went, why? Are you carrying any guilt this morning? Carrying any shame? Oh, I know some of you are carrying tremendous shame. I know some of you are practically buckled with it. There's only one way out. Come to Christ for his mercy. In contrast to the tradition that they were raising up and blasphemously comparing to the word of God, Jesus offers this system. And he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Listen to me, man-made tradition is an inflexible taskmaster. Jesus is a living Savior. Man-made tradition is a yoke that is heavy. Jesus' yoke is light. Man-made tradition is a tyrant. Jesus is gentle. Man-made tradition is the essence of arrogance and pride. It attempts to preside over God's word. Jesus is lowly in heart, yet he is the king of all kings. Isn't that amazing? Oh, what a loving thing Jesus has done for us in this chapter. You see how loving this chapter is? Can you see it? It's often skipped. If we skip it, we do so at our, our own peril. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, there's a rebuke for every one of us in this chapter. But there's an encouragement for every one of us in this chapter, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, I pray that you would please apply. Apply your words, O oh Lord, to our hearts this morning. I think especially, O oh Lord, of, of any of us who are carrying this guilt and the shame. How painful that is, O oh Lord. We know how painful it is. And we pray, Lord, that you would apply your gospel. Apply your gospel to our hearts. Lord, we would truly be set free. For when you set us free, O oh Lord, we are free indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.